Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. My name is Noel. And you are you, hopefully, listeners. My name is Ben, our uh, colleague and... Uh, the Confidant. Uh-huh. Our, uh, our close associate. Mm-hmm. Our uh, what some might call ride or die, mm-hmm. a BFF. Sure. Matt Frederick is on uh, on a mission that he mentioned earlier. Not so much a secret mission. Mm-hmm. But a mission nonetheless. Indeed. And uh, he will be returning very soon. You uh, may be able to catch him on a live show here and there, but you didn't hear it from us. However, this does not mean that it's just Noel and I in the studio today. No, we are uh, we are thrilled to have a, a special guest with us. This is a friend of the show and a friend of mine. Um, we've known each other for a while. The, uh, this is an instructor at Kennesaw State University, also a pretty well-known writer on religious studies on the intersection of technology and the occult, which we'll get to, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> as well as philosophy. And as a matter of fact, when we were talking about this off the air, we were like, how do I, how do we encapsulate the stuff we're going to talk to today? A lot of hats. A lot of hats. The man wears a lot of hats. A lot of hats. Ladies and gentlemen, Damian Patrick Williams. 
Good to be with you guys today. Thanks for having me. Hey, yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to go down a couple of uh, crazy rabbit holes with us. Uh, crazy rabbit holes are the best kind of rabbit holes. <laughs> yes, as far as we're concerned on this show, they are the only kind of rabbit holes. Uh, before we get to today's episode, uh, Damien, um, there's a thing that Noel and Matt and I do where we introduce listeners to each other. It's something we like to call... Shout out corners. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It is the return of the shout out corner, and we have a few people who have requested a shout out. Mr. Brown, do you want to do the honors? Oh, why not? Uh, here's one for Tony Hernandez. Shout out to Tony because he was listening to the Superbugs episode while fighting an ongoing infection. Hopefully, it wasn't a super infection. Best of luck to you, sir. And a shout out to Gwendolyn, uh, who said it was a life goal of hers to receive a shout out on the show. Check that off the bucket list, Gwendolyn. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, we've got, we've got one more here, uh, for today, and that would be Staff Sergeant Adam Demshar, who wanted to know our thoughts on simulated reality, which is something, uh, that Damien, uh, you and I and Noel are going to get into in a future episode, right? Yes. 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 Very much so. And that's our shout out corner for today. So. I am so excited that we're, we're going to take a look at today's topic because it's something that we have talked about at times in our video series. Uh, we've touched on it a little bit. Um, alchemy, alchemy. So what, 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 what is alchemy? Um, I think the best way to think about alchemy is to, to think about the, the historical position it tends to occupy. Um, you look back at like, the dark and middle ages in both, uh, Europe and in a corresponding time frame, but even earlier than that, uh, back in China. And you can see this drive to try to change one thing into another. Mm-hmm. In the European alchemical set, you've got this thing where everybody was trying to find a way to turn lead into gold, which is like the, 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 the tip top thing that pretty much everybody knows about alchemy, right? Right. Uh, Chrysopia, I think. Yes. Yeah. And so this idea of being able to to transmute, and that's the, the big word in, in alchemical processes, transmutation. Mm-hmm. Being able to transmute one thing to another thing, taking various minerals, various metals, uh, various substances and solutions, and turning things into other things. I guess when I think about alchemy as it's portrayed, you know, in popular culture and such, there always seems to be a mystical element to it. But then a lot of times when I hear it described as the way you've done, it sounds much more like a precise science. But in reality, isn't it kind of somewhere in between? Exactly what I was about to say. It's like you can't separate the one from the other. If you look at the the hermetic, well, hermetic philosophers, mm-hmm. uh, practitioners of what were known as the hermetic arts. These people were, they were very, very precise about what it was that they thought they were doing. There were specific formulations, uh, specific formulations, um, specific, uh, combinations and operations that needed to be undergone processes that needed to be very, very carefully maintained. Mm-hmm. For instance, in some of the, some of the things that would now in the modern age perhaps seem like spells or rituals were right. considered 
something like a scientific, a, a, an experiment that must be reproducible. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. and if it's not reproducible, then it, it fails. It's not alchemy. It's not alchemy. <laughs> it's like, if it's not reproducible, if you can't put this down in a text for uh, a further alchemical student, a further mm-hmm. alchemist beyond yourself mm-hmm. to engage in, then then it's a failure. It needs further study. You, you've obviously missed something if it can't be reproduced. Right. And we had spoken about this before off air. Uh, I believe it was John D who had some, uh, that we had been discussing who had some incredibly specific rules, uh, in terms of both process and materials for his alchemical, uh, rituals. Yes. And D was, um, at a time, he was perhaps the best known alchemist in, you know, the popular imagination. Um, John Dee was the spy master for Queen Elizabeth mm-hmm. I. He was her secret agent. He was her, uh, advisor. He was her, her chief scientist. She was, mm-hmm. he was master magician to the queen. Um, there was a rumor that went around that, uh, for a while there that he used to sign his letters 007. Um, <laughs> that has been in no way, shape or form ever fully substantiated, but it's a cool rumor. It's mm-hmm. a really cool rumor. It's like, a good one. Like that's where Ian Fleming got it from. So like, overall, I mean, like a skill set that definitely lends itself to subterfuge and, you know, pulling the wool over people's eyes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, Being able to, if at all possible, misdirect, uh, being able to alter the perceptions of the people that you have directly in front of you or Mm -hmm. perhaps not directly in front of you, but to build up an aura, to build up a sense of mystery, a sense of power that others might not be able to adequately match. So how, how does that tie into the results that we're talking about? Because I think he had some pretty extensive journals that one might consider to be scientific notes of sorts when it comes to this alchemy that he did. Absolutely. So D in his processes, as he was doing the work, uh, John D is famous uh, amongst occult circles anyway, famous for his uh, work on the Enochian texts. Um, he does this work wherein he communes with angels mm-hmm. there's no really there's no other way that he that you can put what he describes here he performs rituals performs uh, magical and alchemical operations to put himself in a state of mind and a state of physical and metaphysical being where he can talk to angels and receive transmissions of their language and then he transcribes it down and that language is the Enochian text. Exactly. And so the, like the, the Enoch or the Enochian is, it takes its name from the biblical character of Enoch. The mm. book of Enoch is an apocryphal text in, um, Christianity. It's, uh, its provenance is dubious. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it tells the story of a man, uh, named Enoch who at the time of his death, um, does not die mm. and does not then, you know, spiritually transform into then a spiritual being that goes to heaven to live with God. Instead, Enoch is raised up. He is yeah. turned into uh, an angel at the time of his death. And so he becomes the voice of God. He becomes the bridge mm. for uh, humanity and divinity. And so the Enochian language, as Dee describes it, is that bridge language. 
it is that that moment, that way of communicating between humans and the divine. And this is a fascinating concept, and it's one that we see bandied about to some degree or another in uh, a lot of popular fiction, almost in a, in like a referential way, this transformative work. Um, you know, there's, it, it's like the whole Joseph Campbell or Frazier's work, uh, you know, with the, the, um, dying and reborn God. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's strange that we see so many of the same stories echoing through the halls of time, but there's one question that I have to ask. Did anyone successfully reproduce these work that we know of? Not in the kind of publicly claimed reproductions of, you know, here's some huge big results that D claimed to have gotten. Mm-hmm. Like, because of D's work, you've got an entire tradition of Western magicians and alchemists that mm-hmm. come along, hermetic philosophers, uh, as many of them styled themselves, that came along afterwards. And what they did was, you know, they said they managed to reproduce the results. Mm-hmm. They also said that if you didn't yourself see the results, it was because you had not undergone the processes to be able to see the results. That in uh, order to directly experience this, you have to go through the transformative process. You have to perform the process yourself in order to actually be able to recognize what's happening in order to be able to hear it, see it, feel it yourself. Now that's, that's a fascinating point. I want to, I want to go back just for, um, just for, uh, some background painting here mm-hmm. for the audience. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, when we're talking about the origin stuff here, Noel and Damien pointing out the, um, we're pointing out that alchemy as this ancient art evolving into a science took place, uh, in, more than just Western Europe. Most Western alchemy, I tr- trace this back, I believe, to Hellenistic Egypt. Yes. And, uh, the, the completely separate branch, one could argue, would be, uh, more Eastern. But in both cases, what we are seeing is the, the origin of attempting to logically categorize, quantify somehow, and explore the universe in a, in a rational way, other than just saying, oh, crap, the sun's here again. I hope it's not angry with me today. Right. You know? Right. Chinese alchemy, for instance, is deeply tied to Taoism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the Taoist, uh, what's oftentimes considered Taoist magical practice. Um, but what that looks like today, when we look at what they were doing and the operations that they were undergoing in that process, we would call that, in a very real sense, medicine. Yeah. We yeah. would call that, if we wanted to make a, a kind of linear progression story out of it, and the story that, you know, because it's a narrative, is about making choices and might or might not have merit to somebody else who hears it. But if we wanted to tell a story about it, mm-hmm. we could tell a story about Chinese alchemy becoming modern-day pharmacology. It's about balancing various energies within yourself. Mm -hmm. It's about using potions to extend life. It's about engaging in the balancing of various elements and energies. And uh, one of the terms that got used in the old days was humors. That's really interesting because, I mean, um, a lot of that is still very much alive today and, you know, massage therapy and reflexology and, you know, essential oils and all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, you know, certainly there are those that would, you know, poo-poo it. But, I mean, people practice it and people swear 
air on it. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And I would argue perhaps that that is more alive today than maybe some of the more transmutational forms of alchemy. Well, this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, perhaps, but like a lot of the people that I talk to and when we talk about, you know, the history of alchemy and we talk about, you know, alchemy finds its footing in the modern era in 21st century as a metamaterial science. Hmm. So you've got the okay, ability. Well, let's, let's put a pin in that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure. This is, this is a, this is a good one. This is a great point. Uh, I want to draw a parallel here as well. So if we are, if we are telling a story, right? If, uh, what we would consider alchemy in China ultimately becomes pharmacology, we have seen that there is substance to the use of herbal medicine mm-hmm. in, in this, in this sphere. Right. This is not a placebo effect right. uh, in in all cases. But I also I wonder if the Western branch of alchemy uh, leads to, well, as you as you said, uh, metamaterials, which we'll get to, but also some of the origins of chemistry are found in alchemy. Is yes, that correct? That is absolutely correct, because we're talking, as we previously noted, about, you know, people who are trying to reproduce results. They're talking about building and working with elements that they are beginning in this way to understand in what we consider a more fundamental way. Mm-hmm. The way that we look at elements in chemistry now, the way that we think about the atomic structure of things was unknown at that point in time. There was vague hints if we look back at like Democritus and Epicurus back in the Greeks of, you know, quote unquote atomic theory. Mm-hmm. But that was not the kind of robust, you know, electron shells and protons and neutrons kind of right. chemical theory that we have today. Um, it was instead uh, at that point in time about, well, there are base elements there are elements of the earth. There are mm. elements that are, uh, more solid. And mm. then there are more rarefied elements. There are more refined elements, elements like gold, like silver, like mm. platinum. And those elements, if you leave elements of the earth alone for long enough, they'll become this will, kind of more yeah. rarefied element, they will evolve into it on their own. So our job as alchemists is to figure out the process by which those base elements turn into the more rarefied elements and to then replicate that process, to control that process, to manipulate that process for ourselves. Ah, and this gets into, uh, gets into something fascinating. So there is a bit of an occultation, a bit of a conspiratorial aspect to alchemy, there is a bit of stuff they don't want you to know because all of these works moving a base element to something more rarefied, more pure, are a microcosmic example of something else, which is the big, the big elephant in the room, the great work. Yes. And we'll get to that after a word from our sponsor. The morning after the party, I mop. It's the second time I've mopped since I moved in four months ago, the first being yesterday morning before the party. I've reached the point in my life where I know how comfortable I am being a slob, but I really don't want my friends to know. Mostly not Mac. (laughs) 
Her music lays down the rhythm for my swipes and sloshes, as it did for dishwashing before this and living room recombobulation before that. Yes, what I'm saying is that it's my third time today through the album she gave me, but don't judge. It's sad and brash and perfect. And every thrum plays through me, like the reverberation of a laugh half an inch above hot skin, like the stubs of her hair soft through my fingers. It's in the third chorus of my favorite song, the one she covered last showcase, that something disjoints. I've gotten a breath ahead of the lyrics, my mop sweeping to the downbeat instead of the back, and that creak, not a cat on the floorboards, both are in their own sunbeam slat on the couch. It came from the album. Mop back in bucket, I moved to my phone and skipped the song back to the beginning. It's all normal, and the cats have adjusted their antenna-dish ears in the way that means they're ignoring me on purpose now. So I wring out the wet yarns again, and I'm daydreaming about backup vocals when... There it is. An extra word lilting through that third line, almost off-key, and emphasized by its own tacked-on beat. And a moment later, that noise, nothing like the hardwoods now that I hear it. It's a guttering grind, a warped door against a warped frame, muffled behind the rest of the track. Weird that I didn't notice it before, but I figure it for lo-fi charm, some studio flotsam, the mandolin player bringing back another couple beers before her next song or whatever. I should keep cleaning. Max said she'd text me later, maybe come back over. But something in my mind keeps fluttering over that misstep. The mathematical improbability of the pattern. Mop in bucket, I pick up my phone and wind the song back, finger dragging over smooth screen. And this time it's expected, and I sing along, punctuate the beat with a slap on my thigh, and suddenly it's sensical, satisfying, even, like picking a scab or popping a zit. Even the stuttering scrape that comes after is a strange comfort. Then I register heat on my nape and turn, blinking into brightness. The door that never was is open, and the eyes beyond are burning. the clutter of this old world and open the door that never was with a Hermes mop find them wherever ancient hidden doorways may lead use only as directed and only in conjunction with Hermes approved buckets and other Hermes household products Hermes household products are not responsible for any of the following side effects necromancy cat litter asphyxiation canary wing bird eye left foot quartz stone poisoned wells moonless sabbat transmutation transubstantiation unintended resurrection gout dropsy stroke broken stern missing aorta and cosmic tread Hermes Household is a subsidiary of Illumination Global Unlimited. Here's where it gets crazy. So, Damien, what is this great work? Well, when we're talking about the idea of the great work, we're usually referencing um, a kind of formulation, a kind of uh, conceptualization. Um, about the magical process of refining oneself. So rather than taking um, a metal like lead and creating a metal like gold from it, we're taking a base human. Right. And- base soul, the base nature of ourselves. Base meaning animal-like. Base meaning, you know, in the sense of we have our drives that are for food and for sex and for comfort and for shelter, but those drives are 
they're they're base. They are basic. They are not refined mm-hmm. drives. Those are not the drives that we ought to be shooting for. They are, if need be, yes, present, but they're not what should drive our lives. They're not what should make us who we are, right? So this base nature that we have needs to be refined through the process of the great work into something pure. And in many cases, it's seen as something pure again. That is back to what we used to be. So there becomes this kind of um, Abrahamic, Judeo-Christian, Islamic kind of sense of the fall, mm-hmm. uh, the the imperfection of humans as being the result of the work of humans or the doings of humans. And so if we can do what we can to recapture that kind of pre-Edenic mm-hmm. fall moment, Mm-hmm. If we can recapture that and turn ourselves back into that through an integration with nature, through understanding the processes of nature as nature works, through I- imbuing ourselves with the same transmutational processes, the same willing control that nature has, then we can turn ourselves again. We can make ourselves again into that kind of perfect, rarefied golden state. So the great work is ultimately a redemptive act. Many see it that way. In, um, in, in many ways. Yeah, many see it that way. Um, some see it as an apotheosis. Hmm. Some see the culmination of the great work as not becoming again like we used to be, but to reach a level as with God. That is to put ourselves, we had to come down from this quote unquote pure state. We had to fall. We had to be in this kind of process of being in the mud and trying to survive and Mm -hmm. scrounge and scrape and then move through that and become more than that. And then to become more than we even ever were before that and to become finally like God. And that's the process of the great work. And that's the point of it. Many see, and some see not just that, but that that's, you know, for putting God in this mix here, mm-hmm. that that's what God wants us to do. That's the purpose of what we're supposed to do. So would you say that being a successful alchemist is sort of a physical personification of having successfully performed this great work on yourself? Yes. Um, that was the idea of being a ultimately a successful alchemist. And I should take a step back and say that a lot of what we know, a lot of what we think we know about alchemy and a lot of our perspective on alchemy is reconstruction, right? So we're looking backward at a group of people who, Ben, as you noted, were very secretive about this work. They were, in fact, occulting it in many Mm -hmm. ways. Um, uh, Off air previously, we discussed this idea of alchemical texts being written in code. Ah, yes, yes. Okay. Th- this is, this is a fantastic and bedeviling thing. So listeners, uh, a lot of, a lot of us have, uh, written back and forth with each other via maybe Twitter, email, or Facebook about, um, mysterious texts. Uh, we, we've talked about, um, both legitimately undeciphered texts like the Vonage manuscripts. Right, right. Uh, we've talked about, um, things that were recreations of that that come from completely mundane sources like the Codex Seraphineus. Uh, however, um, this this is a fascinating thing because 
there are both practical and philosophical reasons for writing in code. One of the big questions that I'd like to explore will be the relationship of alchemists to the established churches of the time. Yes. Uh, and did that play any role in this use of code? Um, to an extent, some alchemists were, in fact, working to hide their processes mm-hmm. um, and their actual activities from the church at the time because – uh, this was a point at which the understanding of magic for the sake of the church was beginning to be seen as um, kind of taboo. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a point in church history in which magic that gets done, there is there's biblical magic. Like sure. there is a history of of Jewish magic, of Christian magic, of Islamic magic. There are traditions of magical processes being built out of certain understandings and certain decipherings of the text. The entire history of uh, gematria and the Kabbalah mm-hmm. is about deciphering coded messages from out of the Torah from by using numerical transformations mm-hmm. on words and texts to then find hidden messages in the text and the same was applied to the new testament by gnostic thinkers mm-hmm. you know, building these kinds of perspectives out of um what is hidden what is the hidden meaning within the text i mean the gnostics came before the first really attested kabbalists obviously but like, right um in all of this i keep thinking wasn't jesus kind of an alchemist <laughs> Actually, some of the alchemists and magicians, the hermetic magicians working later down the line, made that exact argument that what Jesus specifically was doing was working to teach people how to perfect and to refine themselves. And in the process, by the way, here's how you can change one thing into another. Right. You feed 500 people, all you get is five loaves of fish Mm -hmm. or five loaves of bread and some fish. Here you go. Bam. Done. I don't know, guys. I'm not in the mood for water today. I'm just not feeling, feeling it. It's a, it's a nice sunny day out. We're at a wedding. <laughs> Shazam. Here's the Damn. best wine you've ever tasted. And um, yeah, that's, that's a really good point, I think. And it's, and I mean, that's a, that is, that is a line of thought that gets deployed, like I said, by various hermeticists that what we see in Jesus as that kind of figure is the ideal of the alchemist. You know. there, there's something in all of this that keeps kind of bothering me is that the end product of a lot of this alchemy is usually some incredibly sought after material. Yeah. So there's certain element of like titillation and like peaking people's sort of baser instincts, like Absolutely. greed or like, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to be wealthy. Absolutely. And that sort of it's almost like um it it would cause you to be more likely to believe it if you think it could benefit you in some way. Are you accusing alchemy of being a. Uh, Prosperity theology. I'm not making any accusations at all. I just this is what it's a theme. That's a really that keeps good. Yeah, that's a really right. good point. Rather than prosperity theology, I might actually suggest that you think of it in terms of like marketing. Marketing. You uh. want to sell a line of thinking. You want to sell people on this process that's going to ultimately mm-hmm. change and benefit them if they follow through with it. But people don't like to hear that. People, right, people don't, right. especially if it's like a long, complex, involved process. Uh-huh. Nobody wants to hear that. It's like telling people to work out. Yeah, go eat. Go eat like vegetables and stuff and like <laughs> exercise and like don't smoke and eat red meat. And I'm like, eh, can I just like sit on the couch with like an abscisor? And have some gold? <laughs> yeah. And that, then that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's a, there's another thing there. Um, 
that when, when you were saying that, Noel, it makes me, it makes me think of these pursuits. And I don't know how we got this far into the podcast without talking about it. But if you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, think of alchemy, then you probably think at least once of the philosopher's stone. Yes. Right. Um, which is, sometimes a misunderstood thing. It's not necessarily this one guy's magic rock. Right, right. Um, the Philosopher's Stone is variously described uh, in many alchemical texts. It's sometimes a stone, like a literal gem. It's sometimes an elixir that one takes. Um, it's sometimes a uh, particular... It's like a chalice mm-hmm. in, in some. It's like at one point in one text... Um, uh, Mircea Eliade, the sociologist of religion, um, looking and anthropologist of religion looks at the, like the overlap between the philosopher's stone and the, the holy grail mm-hmm. as these transformative relics, these ideas of creation and refinement. Um, but like all of these things are very, very, like they're these things that you can take and then you can hold them or you can have them or you can move them and you can work them into yourself. Mm-hmm. But the process is, um, most researchers, uh, into alchemy have come to understand, uh, the process is about making yourself into a philosopher's stone. Yes. It's about exactly. you becoming this thing that can transform because the, the mythos of the Philosopher's Stone is that you can, with the Philosopher's Stone, transmute anything into anything else without any kind of process, without any kind of, like, hard work. You other can, than will. Other than will. You just will it to be. You want this, you want... Yeah, like transform, transform that gut into a raging six-pack. Exactly, right. you know? You Neo wanna, in the Matrix. In Neo in the Matrix. You want to have, you know, the knowledge of everything in the Library of Congress, you hold on to the Philosopher's Stone, you think about it real hard, and boom, there you go. Like... <laughs> You want a pile of gold where this table used to be, then mm-hmm. there it is. And you can make anything out of anything without having to do the hard work of it. It seems like a devil's bargain to me, though. But that's the thing, is that you get this thing, supposedly, but in the Philosopher's Stone, what you're actually getting isn't this object, this item that allows you to turn something into something else. It's this way of existing. Mm. That lets you recognize the interconnection okay. between all things. And even if I this, guess that's all right. Even if this were to exist, uh, the one of the implicit arguments is that by nature of the process of creating this sort of thing or discovering this sort of thing, the person who wields it becomes themselves so changed by that experience that they're not the same person who would. Right. They would so it is like a quest for like the Holy Grail or something. Right. It's not yeah. the object itself. It's the process of getting to the object. Yeah. And, and then once you're at the yeah. object, you realize, well, I'm not going to do what I initially thought I was going to do with this thing. The, right. the magic <laughs> was inside you all the time, the whole time. <laughs> Jehovah starts with an eye. Exactly. Sorry, I just enjoy that movie. <laughs> Anytime you can make a reference to The Last Crusade, I'm fine with it. Which is still, oh, man, I was surprised. Solid it movie. holds up. Solid movie. It holds up. And then in some ways, you know, uh, what's interesting there, and I love that we're talking about this Holy Grail uh, combination um Oh, I'm getting sidetracked. That might be an episode for a different day. Uh, how about the next thing that we often hear, which is the cure-all, the panacea? Yes, yes. And that actually 
comes back around to a lot of what we hear in terms of um, Chinese alchemy. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this goal of, in Chinese alchemy, your goal is to balance, as I said, uh, the energies inside of yourself to overcome poison, to mm-hmm. be able to be healthier, to live longer, and in some ultimate cases, become immortal. Right. And possibly learn how to, like, fly and stuff. And not, <laughs> like, not like a lich king. No, but, but actually like healthy, human. immortal, forever. <laughs> Can like, still go out in the day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, um, like there's stories of the, like the ancient, you know, the ancient master who has somehow mastered immortality, mm-hmm. who has mastered and balanced all of their energies and mm-hmm. recognizes that all things are an eternal dance of energies and they exist within that dance themselves. And so if they just exist within it, they never have to die. But also in those, we see competing ideologies is one way to say it. Narratives would be another. We see these competing ideas because some of the same mythical figures or legendary figures, uh, who are seen by alchemists as, uh, trafficking with otherworldly powers of the divine are seen, those powers while depicted as angelic in alchemy are depicted as nefarious or infernal in some other, I mean, I'll say it, in a lot of uh, organized religions. Yes, it's very true. It's very true. I mean, so before we get back into the panacea, let's yeah. track it back a second to talk about John Dee a little bit more and uh-huh. a little bit about Enoch mm-hmm. and the Enochian language in the Book of Enoch and the Metatron. In the same apocryphal text of the Book of Enoch, we're talking about a story in which Enoch is given and is made privy to the fall of the angels that fought on the side of Lucifer mm. in the battle against heaven. He's made privy to what happened to them. And what happened to them is that they came down to earth and they had, as they say, Congress and the knowledge of human women. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right, right. The Nephilim. The Nephilim are born out of this union of angelic and human. This kind of unholy abomination is usually how it's categorized, is like the, the outcome of, you know, angelic powers and human powers. Uh, making the various feature figure with two backs. It's, it's a yeah. thing that comes about as a result of the divine and the human meeting in a way that they're not supposed to. Two great things that don't go great together. Right. But also in that, before we get to the Nephilim or mm. actually while that's happening, mm. because the angels in question that fall, they're not just like, Oh, we're going to come down. Oh, Hey, a hot person. And like, then <laughs> that's over. It's like there's, they live with humans. Right. Yes. They exchange with humans. They, they form civilization. Wisdom. They give knowledge and wisdom of things that humans were never supposed to have. Um, Azazel, mm. uh, for anybody out there familiar with the, uh, 
the movie Fallen with Denzel Washington. <laughs> um, uh, that character doesn't just come out of nothing. The, the character of Azazel is actually first referenced in the, the book of Enoch, and he is originally an angel of death. Mm-hmm. His job is to, you know, to make death and to shepherd souls in death, um, oftentimes connected with the figure of Samael and, uh, which is the, in many categorizations, the pre-fall name of Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Um, but Azazel becomes this minister of war to human beings. Azazel teaches humans how to make war, how to make weapons, how to make, you know, metal weapons. Mm-hmm. And so we see this story about the Bronze Age recast as, well, then some angels fell down and talked to some humans about some stuff. And now we knew how to make swords out of metal. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> let's for, uh, let's let's follow this uh, the curve of this rabbit hole just just a little bit further down this ta- um, a tangent. I have a tangent for you guys. Yeah. Uh, all right. So for our listeners, you know, we have to be conscious this this might sound like what we're describing would be a bunch of uh, imaginative, somewhat deluded people who are um, spinning fanciful, if engaging stories about the world, but this. Is still, there is still science at work here, which is the strangest part. I read recently, and I don't know if you guys heard about this, um, that ancient Babylonian astronomers were tracking Jupiter yes. with calculus. With like actual and in fact calculus. Yeah, and they, several thousand years before we ever thought that that was invented. Right, right. <laughs> and because of this, what's so strange is that in What's so strange is that the reason they were tracking, the, the reason that they had this, um, amazingly complex math, which was well done, uh, and it's, it, you know, let's keep in mind this concerns a planet that no one in our species, at least officially, has been to yet. Right. Uh, and so, and they're not working with technology remotely close to what is here in the modern day. They were tracking this. They were doing this amazing job. Because they wanted to know the religious implications, yeah. right? Yeah. And they were ultimately looking for, um, even though they were doing solid work, they were ultimately looking for explanations on the acts and the, the moods of the gods. Right. And so ultimately, yeah, as a result of that, they ended up inventing calculus, you know, about 10,000 years before we thought it existed. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. It's like... When you stop and think about what is actually present in our capabilities, what we what we mm-hmm. can learn to do and what motivates us to do it, as you said, right? So one of the things that I tend to tell my students when we you know, learn about philosophy of religion mm-hmm. and we talk about atheism and agnosticism and, you know, belief, one of the things I talk about is, okay, so let's talk about Islam for a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. In Islam, it's a commandment to know the works of God, to understand the world. It's a responsibility Mm -hmm. that you dig down via science and math and art and figure out the world however you can, Mm -hmm. because from that perspective, God made this and God put humans here to enjoy it, to experience it and to take care of it. So you better figure it out pretty fast so that mm-hmm. you can. Yeah. And we get mathematical, like 
we get mathematical advancements from Islamic cultures around the world down through human history as a result of this. We get oh, architectural advancements. We get geometric advances that we never would have seen if people hadn't been trying to accurately reproduce religious experience mm-hmm. because God said so. <laughs> so, that's yeah, such a, that's such a great way to put it, because what we're finding is that um Noel, when you and I were doing the Flat Earth episode earlier with Matt, uh, one thing that we found was this whole myth about the, the, this entire myth about people thinking the Earth was flat until what was it, 1400s? I, I think guess? so. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That that entire time, um, people knew for the. Uh, the whole time people knew the earth was round. The big argument was like, how big is it? Right. Not what shape is it? But because there were, um, because there were books that attempted to make, uh, science and faith seem, um, at, uh, I think the phrase we use is loggerheads, yeah. which is an awkward word I was trying to bring back, but I think I'm going to have to give up on that one. I like loggerheads. I, it's, it's hard to deploy, but it's a good word. Don't give up on it yet. I like, I, I kind of like, Dropped it and then just kept running in the podcast and hoped that no one called called me out on it. The uh, the best one we had was um, in in that episode was uh, where Noel, I think you invented it, horse wash, <laughs> right? Not bad. It's hard to say. It could have been used before, but it just it occurred to me. I, I just gonna, think it's poetic. Yeah, I'm going to keep going with it. So That's so good. what what we're learning is that. Um, not only is it not the case that science and faith would be um, mortal enemies or irreconcilable, in, instead it is the case that for much of human civilization, the two have been one and the same. Exactly. And, and that's yeah. precisely, like when we think and talk about alchemy, mm-hmm. that's precisely what we're seeing. We're seeing this unification of scientific faith and, well, scientific faith. Like yeah. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing this scientific exploration, what would later come to be called scientific exploration mm-hmm. of faith, of the workings of nature, of the operations of God, because that's what hermeticists, alchemists, magicians at this time are looking for. They're looking for how does God work through nature? How is nature this perfect plan that God created that, you know, works and functions and ticks along perfectly? How does that happen? And can we do it? Ah, yes. The, the million dollar question, the million philosopher stone question. <laughs> and a question we're still trying to answer in many levels today. So let's end on this note. What is modern alchemy? What is the future of alchemy? The current disposition of alchemy as it's understood in the world today, um, it's kind of, uh, dichotomous. On the one hand, people look at alchemy and look at the processes of alchemy and they scoff and they say, um, how could anybody have ever been so naive as mm-hmm. to think that you could transmute lead into gold? When yeah. at the same time, we have a large hadron collider that could do you just that. <laughs> That's true. Like we have the ability to turn energy into matter. We have the ability to do that on a very large scale, and we can do it in a very small scale. I know a physicist working at Agnes Scott right now who could do that in her lab when she goes in, like, later today. Like, she could, we can make protons and neutrons out of photons. All you gotta do is slam them together hard. 
Mm-hmm. We can, we can do this. We can change the atomic weight of things. We know how to manipulate things and turn them into or give them the properties of other things now. We, I think if we brought John D or Isaac Newton. Oh yes. Also <laughs> Isaac Newton was a practicing alchemist. Right. I, for those of you still unaware about that, sorry <laughs> to just drop that on you, but <laughs> like an apple, <laughs> like an apple on your head. Right. Isaac Newton alchemist. It is interesting though, because I mean, you know, you think about just the very idea that these processes would be possible mm-hmm. is pretty innovative in and of itself. You know, right, the fact that right. we're now getting around to catching up with these ideas, you know, I'm, I don't want to speak about whether or not I believe these things to be true or not, or right. that the results were reproducible at the time. But the idea itself is fascinating that you can turn one material into another right. or, you know, change these fundamental aspects of matter. Right. And the fact that we're now getting around to it hundreds of years later is pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, if if we weren't already doing it in secret, absolutely. I just have to pose that part. Yeah, yeah. If it's let's put it this way, uh, we mentioned the the hidden history of alchemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned the the work being transcribed into coded texts, and if there are people out there who have been you know in the process of reproducing these results turning themselves into philosopher stones, being able to understand the energetic processes that alter everything, they're probably not just going to, like, you know, tell everybody. (laughs) That's a very good point. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, beyond the fact that actually being able to turn any material into gold would, at a fundamental level, um, upset the entire world market. Right. Um, If these philosophers are correct in their belief that it's about the process Mm. that learning and becoming more that figuring this stuff out and the change that we undergo as a process of it, as a result of the process, I mean, then they're not going to want to just tell you how to do that. That's a, that's not only it's worse than a cheat code because it invalidates what you could have done. Exactly. So it, it cannot be done, it, it must, or it cannot be done by reading like the Reader's Digest or the Wiki or the Cliff Notes. Right. It, you have to go through the process. And so imagine, as I said, like if you bring Isaac Newton or John Dee today mm-hmm. and they see what we can do, they see what we've learned, they see what we've become as a result of maybe not following alchemical processes and spiritual engagement exactly, but by saying, okay, what works? Mm-hmm. What can we know? What can we understand? What do we know about nature? And then what we have as, as a species and what those of us who follow those operations directly, who undergo those operations directly in that search look like today, I think they'd say that alchemy was still doing pretty well. And on that note, we are going to end our uh, first episode together. Damien, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people uh, find more of your work? Uh, where can they uh, read about you, maybe talk to you on the Internet? Uh, talk to me on the Internet on Twitter. That's at Wolven. That's W-O-L-V-E-N. And you can read my work at uh, com and technocult.net. All right, and uh, we are going to be returning next week to uh, 
No, Damien, I was really happy with our ability to not talk about the other stuff that we're super excited to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we, we showed some very good restraint there. I was <laughs> I was impressed with uh, I was impressed with this. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you tune in next week when we cover uh, technology and the occult, uh, the future of science and magic. And in the meantime, if you'd like to hear any other episode we also uh, we've ever done, uh, we have one on Gnosticism that you might enjoy. You can visit our website, stufftheydon'twantyoutoknow.com. And if you'd rather just communicate with us directly and want to keep the Facebook and the Twitters out of the whole affair, you can just drop us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. For more on this topic and other unexplained phenomena, visit youtube.com slash conspiracy. You can also get in touch on Twitter at the handle at Conspiracy Stuff. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.